You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Well, we are going to be back in the book of James tonight, if you want to go there with me. Uh, we'll, we will be ending James chapter 1. And then, and then continuing briefly into James chapter 2. Again, it's uh, believed by context and by other means that James could very likely be the earliest book written after the crucifixion. It could have been one of the first, if not the first. James was dealing with uh, a very unusual setting in which all new Christians were because the Pharisees who had been so dominant in the story and so rigid in their protection of themselves and, and all that they knew. And James is, is, is now preaching and teaching and assuring all believers that we have equal access to the things of God, we have equal access to the truth of God, the power of God, the authority of God, and each one of us. Now, not only in those who had been held in regard as being those who were godly, but now by what Jesus has done, what Jesus has brought about by his death, the burial, the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that, that the ground is now leveled before the cross. And those who had been felt that they had been disregarded or disqualified, James is saying, no, you are not disqualified. And he speaks very, very directly to it. James had witnessed those things that we read about. So everything we read about in the book of James, we have to hold in the correct context because James had witnessed and heard and seen and was intimate with the crucifixion and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the teaching around it, the, the witness of it. So we can trust that he would not divorce these words from, those, from, from that encounter, from that which he learned because he was there. So when we pick it up tonight, we're going to go back. Uh, let me see where I want to start. I got to get in the right chapter. That would help. I'm going to begin with verse 22. This is stuff that we covered last week. James chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to read four of those verses that we covered, and then we'll cover the last two in more depth. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So that's, the, that, that's what we went into deeply last week. Now beginning with verse 26. If any man among you seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue. So what we're, what we're realizing now in these last two verses 
is James begins to give very specific examples of what he had just mentioned, being the doers of the word, doers of the work and not hearers only. And he begins to give examples, witnesses, things that they could connect to that they would understand what he was talking about. So in verse 26, if any man among you seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So we're going to look more specifically at those, at those two verses. The word religion there, or religious, is, it's used by James more often than anyone else. As a matter of fact, it's a very unusual New Testament word. The word religion or religious, I think, is not used in the entire New Testament more than six or seven times. James here uses it more often than anyone else. It, it expresses the, the external service or exercise of religion, this godliness that originates from something internal. It has such a connection to the word worship. Now, again, we know that there is that an external worship, that which only our minds can do, that which only our hearts can do, Will, will, will not allow us to, be, to express the fullness of our relationship because the worship that we know originates in our spirit. It originates in something far deeper. It originates in an understanding and a wisdom and, and, and truth that we hear that when we hear it, I tried to explain this last night, when we hear this truth, not just because we learned it or studied it, but when we hear it and it comes to us with power, it's like it explodes inside of us. It will, by the very nature of receiving it, create worship. Worship as the outcome of that which we have so powerfully received. So when we, when we look at this word religion and religious, he's talking about something that has this internal beginning and an external expression. We use religion today to try to categorize many things. James was using it according to that Greek, and, you, and I looked it up a couple of different times in the preparation for tonight, and it largely speaks of the external worship of God that originates from an internal understanding, an internal reality. If any man thinks himself to be so, religious, and just the observance of the religious offices without the, without the internal, that's what James is referring to earlier when he speaks of just being uh, a hearer of the word and not a doer. Because when I get the internal reality, when God speaks to me and it hits me internally, there should be the outward expression. You know, when we went back, and I'm just going to go back there quickly, you go back to verse 17. Again, where it says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation, in whom there is no turning. Again, that scripture comes to lie for us if we recognize that in the Greek, the word gift in that verse, that one verse, 
a good gift and a perfect gift, that those are two different Greek words. Again, the good gift is the gift that I receive in its initial state that blesses me. The perfect gift is what happens when that gift that I receive gets extended to someone else. The gift then is perfected because we weren't designed to be just the recipients of the gift. We were designed to be the extenders of that gift to someone else. That's God designed. So if I'm a hearer, what should happen by the nature of being a hearer? It, it should extend to someone else. That's the doer. So to, to simply be a hearer, according to what James is telling us, we've had people for generations among the Pharisees that have been hearers. They know the truth. They have held it among themselves, but it never extended to someone else. I had lunch with someone today and we were, and we were just talking about some things from their history, from their past. And she said, one of the saddest things is that my grandparents knew so much, loved the Lord so much, and had such a difficult time extending it to those people that were closest to them. And I don't think that we find that that's terribly unusual. I read earlier today a story, and we, can, we read these stories a lot, of a man that they had found who had died, I think, I think it was in New York City, died of malnutrition, just making just enough each week to get by. But he died of malnutrition. When they picked him up, he was wearing a belt or a pocket belt around his waist that contained $23,000. He died of malnutrition. Because that which he had, that which he had, he would not use. A hearer that, that it didn't create the doing. I don't know if when we finally get a grasp on this, and I hear about the love of God, and I finally can comprehend that and receive the fullness of that gift for myself in its initial state, this good gift of love that God has so dynamically bestowed upon us. I don't know how, if I have truly received it, how, it, how I can even stop the perfecting of that gift because it should by its very nature flow to someone else. A hearer by nature becomes the doer. And again, and, and Paul is simply giving these descriptions. James is, again, is, he's transferring that which had formerly been done because of the external expectations of religion which was almost in that day ceremonial to the very nature of the external being and the evidence of the personal relationship, moving it from something that the Pharisees could remember. It won't make as much sense if we don't hold it in the context. But James is trying to dismantle the perspective that the Pharisees had created. That one that... that where people's minds said largely the things of God are ceremonial. Even for those who 
didn't have what the Pharisees had. They didn't understand the love of God. They didn't get married because they loved each other. They didn't even really have a concept that they were supposed to have a loving relationship with God. When you look through the Old Testament, you don't hear that being taught. It was the law. It was the following. It was tradition. This is what we did. So even for those who are hearing it for the first time, they're being, what's actually being transferred to them, what they're actually experiencing now for the first time is someone telling them that, that we're moving from something that was largely held as tradition to something that is bound up now in relationship. Re, religion, that formal ceremonial religion was now becoming very real to them in terms of a relationship. And it was based on love. As I talked to y'all last week or last Sunday morning about a world system when, when Paul is saying that, you know, Demas has left him because he loved this former world. And I told you that that world system is a system that has at its core, we must leave God out. It's a system designed by Satan and the, that the world largely has adopted, approaching most things, never having any consideration of God, leaving God out. That's the world system. But, the, but, but that which God had designed, that which as members of a kingdom that we have access to, what sits at the core of the gospel message? What is, what is this hub that everything circles around. It's not confusing. It has many spokes. It's demonstrated in great and dynamic ways. But the hub of, of that which God designed is love. God is love. For God so loved, behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed that we could be called the children of God, the hub of, the, of, of what God designed, what God intended, is that we would know, understand, receive for ourselves that which John discovered first when he described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now we look at that almost in terms again of arrogance. Why didn't he just say it was me? because John discovered something. While the other disciples were trying to say to Jesus, this is how much we love you. Peter's saying, I love you so much, I'll die. I will go, I will, I will experience what you're experiencing. And John's over here sitting next to Jesus. Peter's across the table upset because John's holding this position. What John discovered was that the greatness in our life, the, the, the true greatness of any of our stories as believers isn't just the fact that I can say to God, I love you. He knows that. He knows my heart. The greatness of the Christian life is finding within the human capacity the ability to let God fully love us so that this cup, this vessel, this earthen vessel runs over with the love of God so that so that, that which I received I become an immediate sharer of that 
because I can't stop it. I can't contain it. So when I become a hearer, as James is describing, I don't have to go out and and seek a way to do because what I heard will by its very nature release these hands, release these feet, release this heart, release this mouth to speak, release these ears to hear. I will by the very nature of that which I have heard be set free so that by that freedom others will will be set free as well. This isn't a task or a job he's asking us to go out and complete. He's saying, if you hear, you will do. If you hear this truth of God, that truth can't be contained, just like the love can't be contained. If I receive truth, it's a blessing to me. But when I release that that truth into someone else's story, that gift becomes perfected. So now he's giving this illustration. He's, and and, he's, and he, again, he does it very well. Let me read 26 again. If any man among you seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. So what's he saying? One of the evidence is going to be. When I learn not only to hear, but when I learn to do, what's the first example that he gives here of an evidence of doing as a result of hearing? I will know as a result of what I've heard, what I've received, I will know how to bridle my tongue. As this powerful instrument, I will know how to bridle my tongue. And it won't be because I'm I'm struggling with it. It won't be because my tongue seems to be running loose from my brain. I I won't have any trouble containing it once I've heard the truth. I don't know if you experience this or not. I, I was telling someone this story uh, not too long ago. I, I was invited to a men's Bible study uh, one time when I was in De Leon and we went over to another little community and there were, there were 10 or 12 men sitting around the table. And I, only, I knew the pastor and, and one guy that, that had come with us. I didn't know any of the rest of them. And... It was very loosely organized, which was fine, but it was largely a conversation. And, and two guys kind of got in, into a, a scriptural disagreement. And I'm sitting there saying, Randy, do not speak. Do not speak. Do not speak. Do not speak. Like, I knew the minute I opened my mouth, that they were going to take up a defensive position because they were already a little bit agitated. For me to interject something, they were going to, that agitation was going to turn on me. So I'm sitting there knowing, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And they finally came to this place and they said, Randy, do you have a thought about this? Well, let me see if I can come up with one. No, I was loaded by that time. It was like I was about to bust with with what I wanted to share because the most unusual thing was that both men were correct. They were expecting that the answer would would clarify one of them's right and one of them's wrong when I had an opportunity to expand from a position of truth. They both were amazed 
that they were that they were that they were both correct. They were just talking about two different things. But they but in, in their talking, they kind of missed the, the fact that they were talking about two different things. And when I pointed that out, it was amazing to just watch. It just got calm again. But I had to wait. I had to bridle my tongue because my tongue wanted, when it started, to say the same thing I had an opportunity to say later. But now I got invited. I didn't interject because God knows when to release my tongue and what my tongue should release before I do. So he's he's giving here this evidence, and it's a great evidence that once I've learned to hear, Bridling my tongue should be one of the, those things becomes evident. He says then in verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Once again, Peter, uh, James is giving specific examples. When I look at that word undefiled, I could stop and just preach on the word. Because what what James is referring to, the word undefiled means I get to move with force and I get to move uh, in vigor, is the, the word. I get to move both in force and vigor unrestricted. Defiled, I will not have that force. I won't have that freedom to move. I won't have the same vigor. But undefiled, I get to move freely in the power of what I just heard. So if you, if, in, in James's context, if I hear something and I want to pour it out of this vessel, but the vessel is defiled, the ability to pour will be greatly restricted. Does that make sense? If I have something in the vessel that doesn't belong, it, it creates a restriction so that that which I would love to be able to give to somebody, they're going to have a hard time receiving because they look at me and they see something that is spotted they see something that is defiled, very hard for them to receive that which needs to be poured out. But undefiled, unrestricted, you and I as believers get to move in the doing of the word. We get to move freely. We get to move unrestricted. So this is what James is trying to tell us. Pure religion, the purity of this, undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted in the world. I love, I I just read a a little section of what Charles Spurgeon said about about this verse and he made this comment. Charity, which to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Charity and to keep himself unspotted. Purity are the two great garments of Christianity. I like that. Because the evidence, one of those great evidences of God, 
the reality of what he brings to you and I. He brings, because of his nature, holiness. Holiness is not something I can attain. It's not something that I will ever be able to, to, if, if I had a ruler standing here next to me or a tape measure, the certainty would be that I would never be able to attain the holiness that, that God would love or expect from me. So what did he do instead? He put his son there because his son meets the standard. So his son's death allows me now by the, by the righteousness he's established in me because remember the scripture again, he who knew no sin became sin that we might know the righteousness of God in him. So now when I stand next to this measure, I don't stand according to my height. I stand according to his. It's his righteousness that now covers me. It's his righteousness that now allows me to meet this standard that I otherwise just could not have met. Charity becomes the active evidence. I, I share this often and, and because I, I love the truth of it. When prior to, to Adam and Eve, eating of the fruit. The reason that they could go about the garden the way they did was because they only had eyes to see the other person. They had no awareness of how they were dressed. They had no awareness of the fact that they were not dressed because they had no eyes to see anyone else except the other because in perfection, they were other-centered. And now Satan told them, I, I want to show you the difference, as God knows, between good, which they had already seen, and evil, which they had not yet seen. So when they ate of the fruit, what did they see? They saw the evil that they had never seen. And immediately recognized that they were undressed, because what did Satan let them see? He let them see themselves. These people who had been totally other-centered, now because of the presence of sin, had a full awareness of self. What happens though? What should happen when by the blood of Jesus Christ we're reconciled, key word, we're reconciled back to a previous day? To what day are we reconciled? I mean, we know what, we used to know, I'm not sure who still does this, because of online banking, we used to spend a great deal of time reconciling our checkbook. We'd get the bank statement, go check by check, making sure that what I said I had, they said I had. I used them as being correct so that I could look within my story and have something to compare it back to. Well, by the blood of Jesus, we were reconciled back to some Standard that was correct. What was the standard? Perfection prior to sin. Why would he take us back there? Because now my sin has been covered. I can now go back to a day when I am once again other-centered. So what should be one of the greatest evidences of the reality of our salvation, 
the reality of what God did in his provision and establishing us as children of God, what should be one of those preeminent characteristics or qualities of a child of God? We should once again be other-centered with a very minimal focus on self. Because, I, because what he did when, when, again, when we laid our life down and, and he gave us his life, he gave us resurrection life that now, that now pulses through our veins as, as citizens of a new kingdom, new creations. I now have his life living in me. That also means I get to have his eyes to see with. And I get to see what he sees. So my focus on myself is, is relatively minimized, maybe, maybe unimportant, because he's established a view of self. I, years ago, when I was in the oil industry, I spent several years teaching continuous improvement, helping teams move from just knowing how to use their hands to being able to use their minds as well to turn everyone into a, a businessman or a businesswoman. And we had a, an exercise that we used called broken squares. Now, five people sat at a table. Everybody unfolded their envelope, and in their envelope were pieces to a puzzle. Now, every, the end of every puzzle was the same. Everybody at the table would have a puzzle that was about a 10 by 10 square, all the same color. And we would set tables up, like six tables of this going on at the same time. When you opened your envelope, there was only one rule. You, or not, two rules, maybe three rules. <laughs> there were a few rules. One rule was you couldn't speak. The second rule was you could, you could not take. You could only give. So you were sitting there trying to see if you, could put a, if you could put your puzzle together and actually get a square like you were supposed to. But you had to be watching everybody else's because you might realize, wait a minute, I've got the part they need to finish their puzzle. So you would, you would send it over to them. Now, they might not even know why you sent it because they may not see yet what you, what you were seeing. But the objective was to, was to make sure that everybody had one. The trouble was, if you put yours together with pieces that, you, that were not yours, that really belonged to somebody else, but you had one in front of you and you checked out, nobody else could finish. Because you could put yours together with wrong pieces and nobody else could finish. But if you put yours together and said, I, okay, I'm good, and checked out of the exercise, nobody else could finish. You had to dismantle yours, watching and give away parts of your story, your puzzle to make sure that everybody finished. We, I love the exercise. I still have it. I ran across it the other day that you, you had to be a giver did you, did you have parts to a puzzle? Yes, you did. But you had to be mindful of everybody else at the table to finish the exercise. 
And that got real fun <clears throat> because we would tell the table that finished, just get up and watch everybody else to kind of look over their shoulder. And did it on purpose because when somebody finished first and they got up and they started looking over at your shoulder, it was like they already know and they're just, they're laughing at me. They may be laughing on the inside, but the pressure at that table went up extremely because that other team had finished. And then when the second one finished and they got up and they started looking around, the other four sitting there and I mean, you get sweating because it's like, why can't we figure this out? But it was such an interesting game because it was 100% based on you watching the story of somebody else and giving up what you had to see that theirs was finished. Had such good application. Now, we weren't doing it for Christian reasons, but I used it here at church many times when I was teaching the youth to get them to understand how important it was to have these eyes that were other-centered. Because charity and purity are those two dynamic garments, holiness, and, and letting that holiness be used to touch other lives. I don't know how better to capture what God set out to do, both in, in our example of Jesus as he did it every day, he knew who he was, holiness, but every day was the extension of who he was to those he touched, lives that were changed because of, what he, because of who he was. So I, I just love the way that Spurgeon captured it, a clean heart and an unspotted robe. That's such a clear picture of who we were supposed to be. I'm going to just move quickly into, into chapter 2. He continues. I'm just going to cover a few verses as we, as we move into chapter 2. So if you would just flip over to James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, have not the, not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Let me read that out of a different translation. It's a little bit easier to understand. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He's saying, when you have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you have the understanding of this Lord of glory, one of the great evidences of that is that there will be no partiality. Now remember, again, I bring us back to this, and I'll do it over and over. What was the context in which James was writing? Because there had been such partiality. There had been such an elevation of the Pharisees. There had been such an esteem given to them. And, 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 and James is saying, we have walked in by, the, by what Jesus has shown. He went to those who were broken. He went to the sinner's home. He's ministered to the, to the tax collector as the Pharisees stood outside. The witness of Jesus was telling a brand new story. And James is reminding us, reminding them then and us now, that if we have this faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord of glory, one of the evidences of that is that we will not be people who are partial or give favor 
And he gives an example of that here in this, in this next verse. Do not hold the faith, the glorious faith we have, without discrimination. Verse 2, for if there come unto you an assembly, into, into, unto your assembly, a man with a gold ring, in, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Now again, James is writing something not only powerful, but extremely practical. One of the greatest things, and I have to say this carefully because I, I, I use the word proud with an element of caution it's because it's not proud of me. It's, it, is, it is proud of this body, of this congregation, who now eight years ago when I asked this question that the Lord prompted me to ask, can we finally, will we completely turn off the judgment switch in this church? And immediately upon asking that question, this congregation stood to their feet with a unanimous yes that that day of judgment is over. That whoever walks in, whoever the Father brings into this body, that they won't be measured, that they won't be assessed, that they won't be judged, the color of skin, that, that how they're dressed will no longer be a, be a separate, there will no longer be a separation. And I've watched since that day how this unusual body of Christ is formed. You know, on, on Sunday, you know, I know when people come in for the first time, it's like everybody knows each other and they, and you know, I'm kind of the outsider. Uh, I can assure you that like on Sunday, there were probably, in, I mean, in the congregation that, that's this small, there were still probably 10 to 12 people that, that I did not know. First time I'd, I'd ever seen them and could not have, if I had to, call their name. Because God has formed such an unusual looking body here. But it's because he, could, because he knows that he can send someone and that they can hear and be received and know that they're not going to be measured. That, that that day of judgment is over. Jesus ministering to the taxpayer. Jesus ministering and saying, don't send those children away. Something the Pharisees would not have put up with. He said, don't send those children away. Let them come unto me. You see, I love that heart because I don't, I read this from James and realize the practical reality of it. That once I understand what this faith of Jesus Christ really looks like, this blessing of God really looks like, it will not allow me to become a discriminator of, of, of men. Because what does that discrimination say? 
And he mentions it here in, in words that are a little bit hard for us to sort through and sift through. Let me go ahead and read the last, the, the last two of these that I want to read tonight. Let me read or the last three, five, six, and seven. Hearken, my beloved brother, has, not, has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? He's saying, why are you trying to become, get in favor with those who are so desperately oppressing you? Because what does that partiality say? What does it say about me? If when somebody comes in and I know they have money and I begin to play to that story, and, and again, it's, as pastors, we know this happens. We know that sermons get adjusted not to offend certain people. Because if I offend them, what happens? I'd go somewhere else or, or, the, or the money will stop. I went and, uh, and supplied for Dale Kane when he was the pastor here. No, take that back. Uh, he was doing other intentional interims after he left here. And when he would go to those places, if he had to be gone, he would call me and I'd go supply for him. And uh, he asked me, after I'd preached for him, and I'm not going to mention where, but he asked me, he said, could you tell who in the congregation had the money? And I said, so interesting that you asked because everything swirled around them and how comfortable they were. It was, it was one of those real odd moments to observe. And he said, yeah, we're really dealing with some things because nobody wants to make this family mad. Nobody will upset them because they know that, you know, when you walk into the building, who gave the money to build it? This one family. Who, who gave the money for all this beautiful artwork and this decor? It's that family. They had an ownership of that which they could not own. But they were given that ownership. We know it happens. We know that, but what does it say about me if I'm willing to honor someone simply because of the size of the ring on their, on their finger or the robe or the clothes that they're wearing? What does it say? That there's a, it tells me that there's such a basic flaw in me. It reveals a heart. That's what he's talking about here when he says uh, in verse 4, are you, are you not then partial in yourselves? Are you not speaking of a, partial, a partiality that doesn't just exist in the evidence of what you're doing for somebody else? Where is that partiality originating? It's originating in here. I'm divulging something that's, that's happening inside myself, that I value something and I undervalue something else and are become judges of evil thoughts. Are you not going to the same place? The, or, the origin of this partiality, is it not originating in this evil, in, in the place of these evil thoughts? He, James is hitting us where we live. 
He's reminding us, telling us in such basic form that you and I, as we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 2, in those first five verses, and Paul says, I did not come with the enticing words of men's wisdom. I didn't want you to be impressed with me. I, 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 he said, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to draw your attention away from me because I came in demonstrations of spirit and power so that your faith would not be in those enticing words, but your faith would be found in something substantial. And once again, you and I are the walking, talking evidence, demonstration of spirit and power. Do we not recognize this? Because don't we say by who we are, I was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus said it over and over. You want to see the Father. Look, look at me and see him. Look at by these hands what the Father does. Look at by, here by this mouth what the Father says. Look by these feet where the Father goes. Look at me and see him. There's not arrogance in us when we invite the world to look at us. Not to see me, as, as, as Paul is explaining. I don't want you to see me. But I want you to look and see me so that you can see the great demonstrations of spirit. The great demonstrations of power. So that your faith would be built in something substantial and not simply in the enticing words of men. We know someday I will leave being the pastor here. I can say this with with all of a true heart. I wish as far as the things of the church went that you would not miss me. Because I don't want what I say here, what, I, what the leadership that I provide and the role that God has established, I want you to see him. I want you to know him. I want you to know the power of his resurrection. I want you to know the truth that, and the freedom that that truth brings because it came from him. So that the next person who stands in this pulpit can do just exactly what is described in the book of Acts that each of us have come as an extension of that which Jesus started, O Theophilus, so that now by his spirit we can do that which Jesus has done. So that when I leave, the continuation of the spirit never changes because I'm not the permanence here, he is. He's the permanent evidence. He's the permanent work. He's the permanent ministry. James is making this as plain and poetic as James can make it. I love James's heart. I love that God chose him to be the scribe of this message. 
because he, here, here he is. If anybody could have been elevated, James could have said at the beginning, hey guys, you listen to me because I'm Jesus' brother. And he could have taken instant credibility from an external means to say, I've got importance. I walked with him. I knew him when he was, a ch- when he was just my older brother. Let me tell you about him. And, t- and taken some claim, but James never offered a word at the beginning of this book, drawing any attention to himself as Jesus' brother. He wanted his credibility, his message to be tied up in something far more permanent than, he, than, than James could offer. That's our heart. Thank you, Father, tonight for, for bringing this, teaching us, showing us with these demonstrations that we would be those who administer to the widows and the, father, the fatherless as an evidence of the charity that it now lives in us because you, charity, now live in me. Thank you, Father, that I can live this spot-free, unblemished life, not because of my holiness. I would never make that claim. I know myself too well, but I know that by, your, by who you are and the righteousness that you established by your blood over my sin, that I can live in the freedom that you established in me. You're the charity. You're the holiness. And let our lives, Lord, even today, be the walking, talking evidence of who you are. Thank you, Father, for such a powerful reminder. Thank you, Father, that you tell us so plainly what's on your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.